Our teaching text this morning comes from John 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants do not know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. The word of the Lord. It's my delight to welcome you here to Lambeth Palace Crypt Chapel. Uh, this is a place that we pray in three times a day, so it's the kind of heartbeat of all the ministry of the Archbishop uh, and the Church of England here. Um, and it's a place that's been prayed in throughout the years. It hasn't always been a chapel. It used to be a store. Occasionally it got flooded and it's been like in use since the 13th century. Um, I thought I'd bring you down here because this is the place that we feel most connected to God um, at Lambeth Palace. It's such a great honour to be invited to preach to you today, particularly facing as you face the enormity of the things that you're facing into. It's a signal of your grace and your openness that you're willing to invite a stranger in whilst your country faces everything that was and that is and that needs to be. And as I said to Troy a moment ago, we have been praying for you daily and we will continue to pray for you. Um, I'm Chris Russell. I'm married to Belinda, who's by far the best thing about me, and I have three daughters um, who are 19 years old, 17 year old, and 14 years old, which makes for quite a lively household. Now, the other night I was in bed, got to bed first, and um, Belinda came into the bedroom and caught me waving my phone in the air whilst I was sat in bed, and I was busted. Now. What had happened was my steps were down. 
Now, I'm, I'm not that committed that I've got a Fitbit, but I do measure my steps on my phone and I need to get every day to that magic 10,000 mark. I don't quite know why, but on that day, I needed another 452 steps to make the magic 10,000. And she saw it and laughed and laughed and laughed. Now, I don't know why this is important to me. It's not like I share it with anyone apart from you. And obviously my family now think it's hilarious that I've been obsessed with my steps. It means I take my phone everywhere with me, not so much so I'm contactable, but so it measures my steps. And it made me wonder, I wonder why, I wonder why we are so set on measuring things. I'm a bit stumped since uh, that story happened because yesterday I was washing up and I had my phone on the windowsill just by the sink and I was watching the highlights of the inauguration and I was watching Lady Gaga and I was very interested in her earpieces. So I just, as you obviously shouldn't do, obviously I made the screen bigger to see the gold earpieces and in slow motion my phone jumped off the windowsill, bounced onto a tap and dived into the water. So now I can't measure anything on it. But measuring, I wonder why we do measuring. We measure height and hours at work and retweets and communications and salary and educational standards. And of course, it's really necessary that we measure things. But sometimes I wonder whether all our obsession with measuring things has made us think that what matters is numbers. So I wonder, as we start, I wonder if I could ask you this. What really matters? What really matters to you? to the communities you're part of, but what really matters? Not what sh do you think should matter, not do you think on your best days, oh, I'm, sh I'm sure this does matter, but really what feels like it matters most? I've been asked to bring um, uh, the word today from uh, John chapter 15. Uh, you probably have known now that um, in the fourth gospel, a huge amount of the last chapters are given over to Jesus's final teaching with his disciples, those he's been with in for the last three years. And here he is in the upper room. Now, the richness of this and the depth of it means that we could go on for hours and days and weeks about just a single verse of this. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I've got a little over 20 minutes. But what I want to do because of that is I want to just focus down on something that for me really jumped out at me as I looked at this passage and I, I sought to prepare. And that is the whole concept of abiding. Now abiding isn't a common word. It's, it's not an everyday word. It's a religious word. And I wonder if it's a religious word because only those of us in faith are interested in it. No one else speaks of it. No one else aspires to it. No one else is fired by it. But in this passage and uh, throughout John's gospel again and again, we are given the picture of abiding. I want to begin looking at this chapter in verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. Abiding is everywhere in these chapters. It's more than wait. It's more than just stick around. It's more than 
just keep things the way they are or the way they have been. It's not about staying put, but it's about locating ourselves somewhere. Abiding is about living, about where we locate ourselves. And the thing is, with verse 9, we just don't have containers big enough for this. Listen again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. What? As, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. You'll remember that John's Gospel begins with that prologue, the first chapter, which is, it couldn't be bigger. We're into the, the whole of eternity. In the beginning was the Word. And, and it's, it, the crescendo of it is this statement in verse 18, that the Son abides with the Father. The Son literally dwells in the bosom of the Father, literally uh, is close to the Father's heart, in the closest relationship too. That as Christians, the least we, we would always say that we know to be true, the basis of all reality is that Father, Son and Holy Spirit, this one God, dwell together in love. That the source of all things, the basis of all things, the ground of all being, the truest truth, the most beautiful beauty is the self-giving relationship of love, which is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now this Son says to us, as the Father loved me, so I love you. How, how does the Father love the Son? Oh, let us count the ways. And here we get invited in on the deepest reality of existence and not even our existence of God's existence we're invited in on it and even more than invited in on it this is stated as fact we are loved as the father loves the son I'm convinced that the gospel that the good news we are given in Jesus is news because we don't know it and we're not told it by anybody else than Jesus. We can't figure this out on our own, neither is anyone else going to tell us, only God. And what we are told is that we are loved beyond our wildest dreams. Of course we all measure our lives conjuring up all sorts of reasons for us to be accepted, for us to be given a place in society, in life. I do get that we need measuring in the world, but what measuring does God give us? The love the Father has for the Son, which is immeasurable. I remember a service I was once part of um, with lots of young people and the person leading it um, decided to engage the young people in conversation. And so he said to them all, now, I want you to turn to your neighbour and to tell them things about them that you think makes God really love them. 
And, and, and then we'll get, hear them all back. And so people were there, chat, 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 chat. And then they came back and they were gave, shouted out things that they thought were things that God really, made God really love them. And so we had, you know, oh, God really, you've got really nice hair. Or you're doing your makeup really well. Or, you know, you're really clever. Or you lead worship really well. At that point, I realized I should have rushed the mic and shouted, stop. We are not loved by God because we have these things in us that we deem to be worthy of love. The gospel isn't that God can find enough good in us to love us, enough of what he likes about us, which maybe can kind of tip the balance and, okay, he'll put up with the other stuff too. The gospel is that I am loved as the sinner, as the rebel against God that I am. I'm loved because I matter to God. And why I do matter to him is an absolute mystery to me. But he declares that I am loved because I am his. We'll have no chance of getting right what matters in life until we get clear what matters or who matters to God. And to our utter astonishment, we realise we are those who truly matter to him. And this causes us each day, each day we find ourselves amazed at the love of God. I was talking to a Roman Catholic friend the other day and he told me about the Roman Catholic practice of the conversion of the soul every day. He said every day. Every day I hear the gospel afresh and I am in absolute wonder about it. And because we matter to him, he invites us to make our home in him, to abide in him, to make home. Think about the strength of that image. Of course, for some, this is a, a comfortable image. Physical home might be easy, even comfortable. You might really be able to relate to that. But for others, the concept of home is really painful, especially during lockdown. And, and even more, for some, the experiences of being at home with Jesus and at home with his friends might be comfortable, might be easy for you, but for some it will be really painful. So how is being at home with Jesus going for you and I? Are we home with him or do we rent a room to Jesus? But, or is our home with Jesus more like a kind of holiday retreat? Have we tried to buy the home of Jesus and sublet different parts of it back to him? Is some of you at home with him, but other parts of you is desperately trying to keep closed that darkened room that you keep one hand on because you fear what might happen if it ever opens. What does it mean for you to be at home with Jesus? He, he wants nothing less than that with you, to abide with you. But the setting up of home with Jesus isn't the kind of moving house 
kind of thing. It, it's, it's not something that takes months to do. He makes up all the distance. There's never a deposit necessary. He doesn't put us on trial home today with Jesus. So if you've been away, might I just give you an invitation from all these miles away? Won't you come home? You've got no idea how much you've been missed. And when we come home, we abide. Because in the beginning of the chapter, he tells us that he is the vine, the Father is the gardener, and we are the branches. Of course, the vine is a really resonant, rich metaphor for Jesus, for his hearers, and for the whole history of Israel. And as it, this is the last of the great I am sayings where Jesus says, Ego Amy, where, where we remember like, that when Moses meets, G, meets Yahweh, he, he's told his name is I am. And Jesus again like, invokes this massive language and says, I am. And he says, This time, I am the true vine. The vine. This was an image of Israel. God's chosen people. Throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you'll hear vine language all the way through it. Israel, the chosen nation, the one who are called and chosen, which you'll find this language throughout these chapters, this chosen language, all the way through the richness of these chapters, but chosen in order to bring a blessing to the world. Chosen, chosenness never for its own sake, but always for the sake of others, and chosen to bear fruit. Now, I know very little about actual vines. I know very little about actual fruit trees. But I know they don't bear fruit for themselves. Of course, they bear fruit because that's what they are, but they bear fruit for others, for animals, for humans, in order to be reproduced. That's the reason they bear fruit. Fruit not just for the sake of the vine. And this is a living image. And sometimes I wonder that we'd much prefer it if Jesus like, asked us to be artificial flowers, beautiful flowers that we could just kind of present, or just cut flowers that we could just like have in a, in a bowl or a vase. But no, this is a living, living image that we are fruit, we are branches bearing fruit for him, for the sake of other people. Because what matters is fruit. And God's fruit isn't measured particularly in numbers, but in love. The fruit of the vine is love. So this passage rightfully confronts me and asks me how fruitful my life is. Not in any of the general measurables that keep me awake at night, but in terms of how I give and receive love. As communities of Jesus Christ, the quality of our abiding in Jesus is shown by the commitment of our love. Um, I've, I've loved coming along to Mars Hill in uh, virtually I've, I've loved last week's service was deeply moving for me. And, and I have to say, in the light of everything that you have been through, last week's discussion was a complete revelation for me. 
what a thing it is that you're doing. Loving, a loving community of different backgrounds, political backgrounds, different political affiliations, different economic backgrounds, educational opportunities, different experience, different routes to how you got here, different colours of skin. Love is our watchword as the body of Christ, because I can only be home in Jesus Christ when everybody is here. I can't be at home in Jesus if I'm all on my own. And I can't just be home in Jesus when the people are just like me are here. I'm only at home in Jesus when everybody's here. Now, Belinda and I have three daughters, and after each of them born, we asked, like, are we all here yet? Now forgive me, I know it's a highly, highly privileged position to be able to take. And whilst we might say, some of our households might say, yes, we are all here. Some might say, no, we're not. And it breaks our heart that we're not. But in this body, we aren't all truly home until we're all home. Are we all here yet? No, no, we're not all here yet. So what will it take for those of us who aren't here yet to come home? What does love need to look like for those people? What's going to look different so these people can come home? In churches around the world, we must engage differently with different groups of people in order to get everyone home. Last week, I was so compelled by hearing Ashley and Delwyn and others face into things that that must be considered if the body of Christ is going to be able to be home for those of every race and ethnicity. Of course we are for equality, but equality means making sure everyone can get home. I've been really helped by thinking about it like this. So imagine there's a soccer game, translated for you, a football game, in my language, a soccer game in your language. Okay, imagine there's a soccer game going on over there. And there's a wall that, that people must see over in order to see the soccer game. Now, everybody's the same height, so everybody is equal. But some people seem to have been placed in a place that they can just stand where they are and they can see over the wall and they can watch the game going on. Other people somehow like seem to be on this mound or on these steps that they can easily see over the wall. And some people, from where they've been placed, feel like they're in this ditch. And so they want to see over the wall, they want to watch the game, but they can't because the circumstances that have been dealt them mean that they can't see over. Of course, everybody is equal, but to ensure that everyone can see is going to take more work addressing some of the inequalities than it is for other people. So in this country, in the UK, in the church, for too long we have given lip service to equality. And we've really believed it in our heads, but in our hearts we've not been open to recognising that the educational, the economic, the societal racism meant that we were nowhere near a level playing field. This then is why the command to love is here in this passage. It's as we love one another that we abide. And it is only as we love that we bear fruit. 
and that this fruit is always for the sake of others. In fact, we can tell if we are really abiding in him as much as we give ourselves to other people. Because remember, at the last judgment, it seems that there will be great surprise at those that the Messiah's evaluation of what matters. Because those things that you did for the least of these, prisoners, homeless, outcasts, hungry, thirsty, naked, you did for me. It seems his abiding knows no ends. Of course, of course, Jesus the vine bears fruit. In a moment you will meet around the table. Isn't the wine from the grapes that was this vine's fruit? A poured out love, a love in flesh and blood and action, a love which is given so all might come home. We are called to abide in this love, to be so loved by the Father that we know ourselves to be free. We know that we matter to God and so we can give ourselves in love to others. But this is only going to happen if we let him do his work in us. And his work in this chapter is pruning. Of course, we don't want this. More than ever, what matters to us, certainly in this country, is comfort and ease. Sometimes I think we could lose British society and culture down a lazy river of luxury and indulgence. But the gardener is concerned, first and foremost, with fruitfulness and not how easy our lives are. And that means we must be pruned, we must be cut back. And these things, these things, these pruning things can, that the Father brings about, can feel desperately painful and even damaging to us. And I note in passing that I don't think the pruning is an individual thing. I know from churches I've been part of it's a, a corporate thing and I wonder even, it may be, maybe a national thing. What does it look like for the Father to prune a nation, to prune a society, to pr prune a culture, to prune a church, to prune a life? We don't prune ourselves. We don't even, I don't think, directly prune others. This is the Father's work. And because we can trust the Father, because we are loved as we are by the Father, we couldn't be loved any more by the Father. We can trust that we can be undefended in the pruning that he does. I wonder if I might just offer a particular word to some of us who are parents about our children. If you're a parent, you will know, you long for nothing more for your children than they make their home in Jesus Christ. And if that has happened for you and your family, then thank the Lord. But that might not be the case. It might be that some of your children, all of your children once were part of the vine, but now consider themselves, count themselves to be part of it no more. 
And that is painful beyond words for you. And some of you, some of us, gave our children names as a sign that our greatest desire was that these lives would be lived in Christ. And at the moment, they're not. In preparing this, I I just wanted to bring that word to you and say that if you have, especially if you've given your children names that feel like they are still unfulfilled, God knows. And there is something in this passage which leads me to have hope that our joy may one day be complete. It might be that you can share this with someone and that they can have the privilege of sharing this burden with you in prayer. But in all things, we trust the Father. We trust that something miraculous and fruitful waits on the other side of every pruning. And so will we submit to the Father's pruning? Will we even pray for it? Do I dare pray this day that this week ahead, the Father would do his pruning work on me, that I may show his fruit to the world, that I might be more loving? Will I lean in on discomfort? Will I lean in on difficulty? When things I want are taken away, when fruit I was proud of and wanted to show, not only gets taken away, but the whole branch gets cut off. Because what matters is my fruitfulness that God brings about. Not in my strength, but actually, but actually, through my weakness. For of course, of course, of course, this is where the love of Christ most meets us. At the foot of the cross, when we have nothing, all the fruit that we thought we gathered that was very impressive is no more because it's been cut off. And all we have is the fact that we are loved by Christ. The cross is the deepest pruning, but also the place of the most profound fruitfulness. For what matters, what really matters, friends, what really matters isn't even us. What matters is Jesus Christ and his glory. And where is his glory seen? His glory is seen as he gives his life, as he suffers, as he dies for the sake of his enemies. Within hours of speaking this, the vine is going to be pruned right back even more, not just pruned, but it is going to be seemingly destroyed. And as it was, this life of the vine will be more fruitful than ever, ever, ever before. Everybody thought what was gone was fruitless, what was, it was spent, it was wasted, it was gone. Yet this ultimate act of love, this defiant, kind, true, beautiful, godly love, here God's glory is revealed as he dies, as he gives himself, as he allows himself to be utterly cut back. That love may be fruitful. His glory shown not in those impressive, measurable numbers. His glory shown in the man dying for the sake of other people. The miracle of stronger than death love. And so we, we, those who abide in him, we, those who are conflicted and compromised, 
We, those who, who on the whole, so rarely choose to be pruned or cut back. We who so easily count the wrong things and confuse what matters. We recognise at the table of the Lord, the broken table of the Lord, where not all the family yet gathers around. We realise here that what matters is Jesus Christ the Messiah and how he loves us and how he calls us, commands us to love one another, that everybody might come home and realise they matter to him. We join Troy at the table.